0: I'm really glad you're here. You braved the ice and snow. Those of you who are at home, welcome as well. We're glad to be in fellowship, as, as Jake said, all of us together. And I mean that. I, I love knowing that we're here and we're there, but we're gathered as one church. I think of that often uh, one church around the entire world. Christians gathering in the name of Jesus all over Oak Harbor, Anacortes, and the whole area this morning. And we're just part of that. And what a blessing to know that God is in all of these places and he's with his people. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. So open up your Bibles there. I do wish you all a happy new year. He's not here. He'll be here second service. But today is also a happy birthday to my son Christopher. So Chris is 15 today. I to only have three more years I have to deal with him. And then we're, you know, <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you're a parent, you know that's just not true. The Gospel of John, Gospel of John, I'll let you turn there. I want to thank John for coming in and, and doing worship this morning. We're doing this trading off, but uh, um, I don't believe I'm contagious, but if you're not sure, just sit toward the back, you'll be fine. John chapter 1, but th- thank you again, John Lot, and Lisa and, and the band for uh, taking care of worship for us. John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God He was in the beginning with God All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being In him was life and the life was the light of men The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of your most Holy Spirit into our hearts and into our lives today. As we begin what we culturally, traditionally think of as the new year, we like the idea of starting fresh, starting over. Well, every day is new with you, Lord. Every morning, your mercies are new and fresh, and your grace covers us and washes us and cleanses us and sanctifies us Every day. And we're so thankful to you for that. And we pray this morning, Lord, that uh, again, the light of your truth would shine into our hearts. Shine out, Lord, all of the dark places, the crevices, uh, the hidden places. Lord, that you would reveal to us all that is in us, that you can take that which is not of you and those hidden things and you could just shine them away that we might be children of the light, as you've called us to be. And Father, in this month where there is snow and ice on the ground and there is darkness and short days and this time of year, odd year in my mind to call it the new year, but but yet odd odd time, Lord, but yet, yet here we are and you are with us. So I pray for our recognition, Lord, of your presence, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, for anyone who hears the teaching of your word, who has not believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that your word would pierce through and even today bring new birth, a new life. In Jesus' name, amen. God said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come now. And let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins together. You can almost hear God saying to you to me this morning, be reasonable. Just be reasonable. Now, I know you can't reason with a lot of people, especially we live in an age that has seemed to go off the edge of reason, even beyond all reason. So it stands to reason that many sadly believe there is no rhyme or reason. But as we open the pages of this gospel, all I ask, all I believe the Lord is asking us to do is please listen to reason. Listen to reason this morning. Reason has a name, <clears throat> and it's Jesus. Reason <clears throat> is rationale. It's logic. It's sense. It's mind and intelligence. It's meaning, that substance, explanation. All these things <laughs> stand to reason. All these things are about reason or are definite. Get it? That, that makes sense. I can reason that out. It is a reasonable thought. The gospel which claims to explain God and reveal Jesus as the light of the world, a light shining in the darkness is the most reasonable thing ever given to humanity. And so God says, come, let us reason together. And he shines his light in the darkness. The question is, will the darkness comprehend the light or not? Now, as we open up, John, I want to give you some background this morning. And we'll get into a few of the of the opening verses, but John is by far the most reasonable of the four gospels. And that's not to say that the other four or the other three are unreasonable. They are all the gospel, they are all aspects of the life of Jesus. But while Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on what Jesus said and did, John focuses on who Jesus is, his heart his mind, his motives, who Jesus represents, what it is that Jesus explains to us. John hones in on who Jesus is, the word or the reason of God. He is the reason. We use that somewhat trite phrase around Christmas time, he's the reason for the season. It's been out for, I don't know, a couple of decades now. Jesus, the reason for the season. I like the phrase, but he's a lot more than the reason for the season. He is the reason of God. He is the Word of God. He is the explanation of God, as John is going to show us. In fact, Jerome once wrote, John excels in the depths of divine mystery. Erdman says its stories, that is, of the Gospel of John, are so simple that even a child will love them, but its statements are so deep, no philosopher can fathom them. Or A.T. Pearson just said, the Gospel of John touches the heart of Christ. It is the go-to. If you want to get into the heart of God, if you want to know God, based on the writings of one of the four gospels, I send you to John. Because John is the one who expresses who he is. John goes where where no gospel has gone before. Not beyond all reason, but into the heart of reason. John goes into the word John goes into the Logos, the Logos. What does that mean? Not what, but who. It's not what is the Logos, it's who is the Logos, and we'll get into that. Revelation 19, 11. let's go all the way to the very end to find out exactly who the Logos is. This word, word, in the beginning was the word, and John uses the word word many times in this gospel. The word is Logos in the Greek. And this word best describes, you know who, it's Jesus. But listen to this. Revelation 19, verse 11, John wrote in the Revelation, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. This is the promise of Jesus' return. And he's returning. Prophecy update. Hey, it's January 2nd. A little prophecy update for you. This actually was shared by John Corson a couple of days ago. I love it. He said, I got a prophecy update for you. He said, Jesus is coming today. And if not today, tomorrow. (laughs) And if not tomorrow, he's coming the day after that. And see, that's how we are called to live. That's how we are supposed to live. By the way, brothers and sisters, keep in mind uh, our brother Rod Franz. Um, His wife, Gloria, went home to be with Jesus. Just in the last couple of days, I guess, Les, is that right? We just got word of this. Les talked to Rod, and Les said, we're so sorry for you. And Rod's response was, we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing. Who can say that at the loss of a beloved except someone who knows the word of God, who knows that Jesus is coming today, and if not today, tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, tomorrow. The day after that, that's how we live our lives. That's how we face grief and loss and sorrow and joy and hope and triumph and success. We know that Jesus is the Word. We know the Word of God is coming. We know the Word of God is going to make reason out of all of this that we would understand. Well, John wrote. John wrote of Jesus at the end in the Revelation and At the beginning, at the beginning, for in the beginning was the word he begins in the gospel of John. And and while his gospel starts at the beginning, it's interesting that John wrote it last. We know this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. If you've heard that phrase, the synoptic, synoptic means see together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the see-together gospels. They work together, they cut a similar timeline, they, they share, they borrow stories. And so they're very similar. If they're so similar, why do we have three of them? Because they're three unique perspectives that are all vital to the larger picture of Jesus. But they were all written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' life pretty quickly afterward and circulated there in the early church. The life, the ministry of Jesus, these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written by the mid-50s to the mid-60s A.D., somewhere in there. John came much later, though he begins his Gospel in the beginning, he wrote last. The earliest church fathers tell us this, a church father by the name of Papias, And these are some names that maybe you've heard, you probably should know early church fathers, church leaders, coming after the apostles, the the next wave of leaders in the church. Papias lived from AD 60 to AD 130. So he was born 30 years after Jesus ascended. And Papias is one who, who said that this gospel, John's gospel, came forth. He called it the fourth gospel. Irenaeus, who was born in 130. Calls this the fourth gospel. Tertullian, who was born in 160, again, again, agreed with these, calling this the fourth gospel, and all the best evidence we have points to a date of 90 to 100 A.D., somewhere in there. So at least 60 years after the fact, John puts pen to parchment, or perhaps 70 years. In fact, there are those who said, no, he wrote this in 100 A.D., John is intentionally unique from all the other three Gospels. Some things to note that John leaves out that you'll find in all of the other three, the birth of Jesus. Mark only goes to just the beginning of the Gospel. But the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke talk about that. The baptism of Jesus is in all three of the others. John doesn't mention that. The temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, John doesn't touch that. Demonic confrontations. You don't find that in John. Parables of Jesus. The Last Supper. Well, What about John 13? Yeah, but you don't hear about the Last Supper as in the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the wine, the passing out, Jesus saying what he said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you're not gonna see that. In John, you see other aspects. The agony of Gethsemane. You see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, you see a powerful Jesus in Gethsemane. Is it a contradiction? No, no, it's both. It's both. Even the ascension of Jesus into the heavens dealt with in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not dealt with in John. Why not? He didn't have to. They already did. John didn't set out to write a gospel that would, you know, confirm what was already written three times. Rather, John wrote a gospel from a very unique perspective, again, centering in on who Jesus is is. To help those read. The others primarily center on Jesus and his ministry in the Galilee while John centers on Jesus in Jerusalem. And in fact, not just in Jerusalem but, but during the major feasts. Many of the feasts are taking place throughout John. Jesus is up in Jerusalem, goes up to Jerusalem for the feast. John deals with that, primarily tracks Jesus on the streets of the city of God. You might say, well, again, but why four Gospels? Why not just one and have it done? John writes in John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even all the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John's absolutely right. But did John really write this? See, along come the higher. And so we process these things and come to the conclusion that perhaps John did not write. I don't know why I'm doing this in British. (laughs) That maybe John didn't write this gospel after all. Someone else did and they just used John's name. Well, it's interesting, John's name isn't in the gospel. He doesn't name himself. Now, the early church fathers did. Once again, Irenaeus, who sat under the teaching of another early father, a bishop named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, was a direct disciple of John's. So John discipled Polycarp, who discipled Irenaeus. And Irenaeus said, and I quote, Then John, the disciple of the Lord who had rested on his breast, there in John 13, at that last supper, himself also gave forth the gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. So Irenaeus, who knew Polycarp, who knew John, said, oh yeah, Didymus, or T. Diddy, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, John was one of the two sons of Zebedee. That's the closest you get. And two others of his disciples were together. John 21, verse 2. So if you want to know if John's name is mentioned, he's he's referred to, he's implied, but that's as close as you get in the Gospel of John. F.F. Bruce writes this, and I love it. He says, it's noteworthy that while the four canonical Gospels could afford to be published anonymously, the apocryphal Gospels... Apocryphal, you know that means a writing of dubious authenticity, a writing that we don't think probably was written by the person who claims to have written it, the Apocryphal Gospels or the Apocrypha. He says, these began to appear from the mid-second century, that's about AD 350, onward, all falsely claimed to have been written by apostles or other persons closely related to the Lord. In other words, the legitimate Gospels don't need to name drop. The legitimate Gospels don't need the name of the writer because it was known who wrote them. It didn't matter. They just present Jesus, the name above all names. For Matthew, for Mark, for Luke, and for John, the, po- the focus and the point is Jesus. So John doesn't name himself because he doesn't need to, because this is not about John. Now, there are some things about John we can learn and know, some things about the writer of this book, and I'll share those with you in just a moment. But this is about Jesus, and John keeps himself out of it. I love that. That's the heart of a follower of Jesus, by the way. Keep yourself out of it. It's not about you, it's not about me. This is about Jesus Christ. It's not about whether I'm getting the kind of response or sensing the kind of success that I want to feel or sense or get in, in my ministry. It's not even my ministry. It's his. The servant of the house is simply a servant of the house. John knows his place. John could have set himself up as grandiose in this gospel, and he doesn't even name himself. But again, we know it's John. We just do. The internal and the external evidence of this gospel give us plenty of clues about its writer. First of all, we can know by reading through it, he was a Jewish eyewitness. He saw these things, but he was also clearly familiar with Jewish culture and all the times of of first century Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. He knew what was going on. He understood it, and he writes as one who gets it. John 19, 35 says, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling, know that his testimony is true. How do we know his testimony is true? Because he saw it. That's what testimony is. You've seen it, you're a witness. This writer's an eyewitness. This writer's faithful to the language of John. In other words, he just sounds like John. And, and it would be easier to see that if we all read Greek. Because you would just see in the Greek language, the way he writes, common, ordinary, koinonia Greek. None of that highbrow classical stuff like Luke uses or or the Hebrew pastor. No, this is is street-level Greek. This writer writes from the hood. For the average common person to just pick it up and know the words, there's nothing highfalutin here, there's nothing classical here. This is just good street Greek and the phrasing, and the language. It just sounds like John. Listen to this. This is the first letter of John where he he does ultimately name himself. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's verse one. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. That's, that's John writing. Well, you're going to hear the same kind of language in the gospel. Read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Read the gospel of John. You're going to hear John. Because, again, he's, he's the author. So the language is his, that, that street Greek. And the testimony is his. The witness, the Jewish witness is his. And above all else, we know this writer was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I love that. In fact, I've kind of ripped it off. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. You can be whatever y'all want to be. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that's the best way to look at ourselves as his children. Beloved by Jesus. You know, when you realize that, and someone is unloving towards you in the world, you can step back and while it may hurt, you can at the same time say, but but I'm loved by Jesus. Someone's hateful towards you or spiteful or mean-spirited or angry. I'm a disciple that Jesus loves. That's my self-definition. And and that's this writer's self-definition. It's his only self-description, in fact, throughout the entire gospel. In chapter 13, verse 23, if you wanna jot these down, He talks about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 13.23, 19.26, we'll see all of this. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 2, we won't see this if Jesus comes today, but you know what I'm saying. Chapter 21, verse 7, chapter 21, verse twenty-five. times as one who really knows Jesus. He writes as one among the twelve. Things only someone among the 12 would know. He he personally describes moments among the inner circle of the 12 that only the inner circle would truly know about. That inner circle of Jesus. You know who I'm talking about? Peter, James, and John, and sometimes Andrew. And Jesus would sometimes just hub with them. They're the ones, Peter, James, and John, who he took up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. They saw things none of the other 12 even saw. And this writer was among that group of three, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Think about that for a moment. John, 60 years later, comes along and begins to write this gospel and begins to share these things. Can you imagine the perspective that John had? The perspective. Imagine meeting Jesus face-to-face. You get to meet him, see him hear his voice, talk to him. And then he calls you to follow him. So you start to follow him and you listen to him and then you socialize with him. you laugh with him. You hear his dumb jokes and his, and his good ones. Actually, I wonder, I wonder, did Jesus ever tell a bad joke? I think he probably always nailed it. Laughing with him, talking with him, traveling with him, sleeping out under the stars with Jesus to know him as dearest friend. He's the one who who, who you've got on the speed dial. He's the one who you you call first. He's the one who you're just connected to and with, and you talk to every day, your dearest friend, and then you see him arrested. You watch his trials take place. Oh, yeah, this this rider was right there in the courtyard watching it happen. And then you see him hauled off and crucified. This rider was at the cross sparks in your heart to know him as dearest friend in the most casual of ways and yet to see him resurrected what does that do to somebody after the resurrection this writer the writer of the gospel of John was out on the Galilee he was with Pete and Tommy and Nat and Zeb's boys and two others they're all together fishing because that's what Peter does when he doesn't know what to do he just goes back to what he knows and they're out fishing together, and they look on the shore. You know the story. It's in John 21. They look, and they see a man on the shore, and the man says, have you caught anything? And they say, no, we've been fishing all night long. He said, hey, try the other side of the boat, which always cracks me up. Let me just tell you, if you're not catching on the left side, you're probably not going to catch on the right side. But the man on shore says, cast to the right. So they cast to the right. They haul in 153 fish. There's a reason for that, by the way. They haul in a massive load of fish. In this remarkable moment, John 21, verse 7, it tells us that the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. He recognizes him there on the shore. Imagine this, after seeing all of that, walking with, talking with, living with Jesus, being vital in his ministry, experiencing all these things, seeing him resurrected, and then on the beach, resurrected again. And we know from the other gospels that John would have been there watching him ascend to heaven. Imagine after all that, seeing Jesus again. And he may have possibly, I'm not saying for certain, and just, I'm just throwing this out there Please don't send me any emails telling me how wrong I am. But I've looked closely at this, and if John wrote the Gospel of John in 100 AD and he wrote the Revelation in the mid-90s, that means he would have written this after the Revelation. Possible. Maybe not. Maybe he wrote John before the Revelation. Again, I'm not going to argue the point. I can be wrong on this, and <laughs> so can you. But <laughs> But it's possible that John saw Jesus in the revelation and then sat down and wrote this gospel. That blows my mind. To know Jesus as personally and intimately and commonly as he did and then to see Jesus as he really is. What would that do to somebody to realize that the love that he shared with Jesus far surpassed the human relationship that they had on earth, that in fact God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. To understand, to know, and I think that's why this gospel is before us. Eusebius came along and said that John wrote this gospel in 100 AD. So again, that may mean that John saw Jesus after he was awesome and glorified in the revelation. Well, no doubt for all of this that John was the writer of this gospel. John, son of Zebedee. And I'm I'm taking some time with this because I think it's really significant to know. I love that this was written by John. Because what we see here is John who ended up with this wonderful nickname. He was known as the apostle of love, the apostle of love. And that's so wonderful because he wasn't always so loving. At one point, we know that John could have been called the apostle of hotheads because Luke chapter 9 went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Remember, the Samaritans and the Jews had big issues with each other. So this village said, no, we will not house a Jew who's going up to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Yeah, let's have an Elijah moment here, Jesus. Let's just burn the snot out of these Samaritans. (laughs) Ha-ha! And Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But that was John. He was even nicknamed, he and his brother James, Boanerges, Sons of Thunder, Loudmouths, Fiery Ones. These were the names that Jesus gave to James and John, and yet he ends up the disciple, the apostle of love. Jesus hung out with John Three years. And in those three years, it changed him forever. Do you have three years you can give to God? Three years of your life to be changed forever? Now it can happen a lot faster than that. But in John's case, this is what Jesus does. In your case, in my case, he changes lives. There are times people won't come to Jesus because they think their life is too messed up. They think, I, and what can He do with this? I'm not going to change. You must think awfully highly of yourself to think that you are greater than God, that you can't be changed by him. He can't do anything with this. Give him a year. See what happens. Christians, if you in your life have been living a certain you Jesus does that. He changes lives. 1 John 4, verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Not fire. Love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is where John ended up. Known for the famous phrase, little children, let us love one another. Let's love each other. This was the the message on his lips. By the way, I've noticed that in old pastors. I've noticed that the old pastors out there, when they're young, they tend to be a whole lot more fiery. Fiery. But as they age, there's a lot more grace. There's a lot, a lot more love that is spoken and, and shared and, and put forward. I think that's what Jesus does in us. He causes us to be more loving. Why did John write this, by the way, so late? Why do you write the gospel at all? In fact, if you want a purpose statement for the gospel of John, it's John chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Son of God. Which is tantamount to saying Jesus is God because Son of God, which is Huios in the Greek, Huios Tautheo, or Ton Theon. The Son of God means the Heir of God, the Heir apparent, the one who takes over the Father's business, the one who is equal to the Father. This is what John is describing. He says, This whole book here is here for you to believe. John must have seen something late in life as he's moving, aren't getting it. Gospels are being circulated and blessing the church and and, and those who are followers, but but people aren't getting, they're, they're, they're missing something here. I think this is where the church is here at the end of days as well. The church of the last days is looking at the world and looking at our country and going, something's not right. This is getting lost in translation people aren't getting the message. I think John was thinking the same thing. He sits down and he begins to write this gospel and the whole purpose of everything that he puts to paper, everything that he writes, everything inspired by the Spirit is that we may believe, that we may know who Jesus is and by knowing who he is, by believing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we can have life in his name. So the purpose is very clear in this. Jesus is God. And John wrote, so that you, so that I, so that everyone may know him. That is, may know Jesus and therefore may know God. I love this story. In fact, I think I told this last time we were in, in John. It's back in the early 1970s when Mike McIntosh and Greg Glory were out doing ministry together. They didn't look then like they look today. It was the midst of the Jesus movement, and so they had the long hair, and they had the Jesus look, the beard, the mustache, the long hair, the kind of hippie Jesus look, and the two of them went to a uh, a psychiatric ward in California to visit some patients there, and Mike McIntosh was standing there with Greg, and he said to one patient, would you like to meet Jesus personally, and the patient turned to Greg and said, nice to meet you, Jesus. Jesus. Would you like to meet Jesus personally? Maybe you've been a follower of his for a while, but your faith's been kind of dry, you know, kind of deuteronomic. <laughs> Maybe you've been into the word, but, but it's been educational and informational, and, and your heart is just saying, I, I need a season of drawing near. I need to know God better than I know him right now. Oh, you've come to the right book, because that's John's intention that we can meet and know Jesus. He wants to introduce you, or maybe in some of our cases to reintroduce us. And listen, John's not going to sell you on a belief system. It's one of the things I love about the Gospels is none of them are about being a certain kind of Christian, a Baptist or a Methodist or a Bridgian. Whatever. It's not about being a Catholic. It's not about being this or that. It's simply about following Jesus and knowing Jesus. John will not sell you on a belief system. He will show you a Savior to believe in. And that's the point of his gospel. In fact, that may be the most significant reason. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the unreasonable signs of the end times is people worshiping and serving the creature or the creation rather than the creator. I just read an article this morning talking about this very thing. Again, global warming is the reason for all the tornadoes. Global warming is the reason for all that we're dealing with. You know, snow and ice in Washington in December, come on. And it, and it hit me that this will now forever be the answer to any global upheaval so what the devil has effectively done is is deceitfully taken away one aspect of how God in the past has gotten the attention of humanity. Now it's global warming, considered God getting our attention. It's no longer God. No, it's, it's global warming, or, or you know, or it's climate change, or it's it's these other it's alien abduction, or you know, there are things out there now. All these excuses to say, ah, no, that can't possibly be a God thing. And we see this going on in the world today. Uh, You know, in the end times, we should expect that they'd have an Earth Day. We should expect that people will be worshiping nature and created things and the created universe. And by the way, what many people forget is that the ecology movement, do you remember ecology? That's the, it was the early, back in the 60s and 70s, they called it the ecology movement rather than the environmental movement of today. The ecology movement came out of the communist party movement on college campuses in the 60s. That's where this came from. That, that's where this thing is rooted. Environmentalism is just about controlling people. As we see with many of the politicized issues of our day, COVID being the most recent, it's about trying to control people. It's about using fear to control you, to control me. Well, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, very clearly, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And by the way, just stopping right there, Four words into the Bible. If you will accept that right out of the gate, the rest comes pretty easy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, John says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, to create in the beginning means that you have to precede the beginning, doesn't it? Not just there showing up, he was Pre existence. So note this Jesus is the pre existent Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of incarnation, which did not happen in the beginning, the incarnation happened some 4,000 years in, if I'm just taking the Bible literally. Incarnation, it means taking on carnal, physical, human flesh. This is something that happens. All the time. In maternity wards and homes and even bathtubs. You know, little incarnations happening all the time. Not the incarnation of God, however. The putting on of flesh, yeah, that happens. That's kind of how we roll on. But the incarnation of God, the Word. As John's going to say down in verse 14, the Word made flesh. You know what's interesting? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, have their version of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, knocks on the door, and wants to talk with you, note that they will not be using the same Bible you're using. They'll be using the New World Translation. The New World Translation loosely translates, retranslates, drops words, mistranslates to support their doctrines and their dogmas. And in this verse where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, the New World Translation says, and the word was a God. It's just one little letter. You slide it in there. And the word was a God. Well, there's, that's not there. That's not there. There's, there's no definite article there. The word was God. That's it. That's what it says. In fact, you might want to jot this down because if, if someone from the Jehovah's God-like, perhaps they might try to say, well, you can tell them this. Well, I, I happen to know in the Greek, jot this down, that that sentence is theos in holagos. And they'll look at you and say, well, no, I'm just saying, you know, you have your translation, that's in English, but the Greek, the original Greek says kai, K-I-E, if you're jotting this down, none of you are jotting this down. What's wrong with you people? K-A-I, Kai, Theos, T-H-E-O-S, N, E-N, Ho, 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 H-O, okay? Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Jot that down. Literally, it translates, and God was the word. God was the word. Our translation says the word was God. It's the same thing. But the Greek literally says God was the word. So this word that John is describing, God was Emmanuel, which means God with us. A virgin being with child is not a sign. The sign is that the child would be Emmanuel, that this would be a miraculous thing. So Jesus is eternal, the preexistent word that before he became incarnate, putting on flesh, donning the earth suit of humanity, He was eternal, that Jesus is eternal. Listen to me, you were not. You are now, but you were not. That is, we have a beginning. We have a a start point. Jesus does not. He is the pre-existent word ever existing. All the cultish ideas of human pre-existence and reincarnation. These things are simply grasping at an eternal life without God. Boom. We step into new life eternally when we're born again, born of the Spirit. He's going to talk about that in chapter 3. But Jesus is different in that he was preexistent, being God, having always existed, no start date. Well, why is he called the only begotten son? Because there is a day of begottenness. Which, by the way, wasn't in Bethlehem at his birth. It was in his resurrection. A day of begottenness. That's another concept for another time. But Jesus has always been. John will quote in this gospel, and note this, he's going to give us seven I am statements. Remember what God said to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. Moses says, who, "Who shall I tell the Israelites is sending me? I am that I am," he says. Yahweh, the tetragram. Jesus leaves no doubt, at least as to what he thought of himself, what he taught, what he said of himself. He said, "I am the bread." John six thirty five. I am the light of the world. John eight twelve. I am the door. John 10, 7. I'm the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And finally in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Seven statements where Jesus uses that beautiful name. In Greek, it translates ego eimi, I am, but in the Hebrew, Yahweh. I am the bread, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine. I am, Jesus says, again, and two are unnamed. Three are Passovers. In fact, the Passover frames this book at the beginning, the middle and the end, which is how we know from John. And this is interesting. We know from John that Jesus' ministry was at least three years, if not three and a half years, because he talks about three Passovers. If you simply read chronologically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might think his ministry was a year long, because you don't hear about all the different feasts that are taking place. John opens and expands that, and we realize, oh, okay, he was at this for some three, three and a half years, seven feasts in the book. By the way, John doesn't name all 12 apostles. He just names seven He names in his gospel seven other men, John the Baptist, Nicodemus, Lazarus, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Joseph of Arimathea. Seven other men are named outside of the apostles. He will name seven women in his gospel. Four Marys, Martha, and interestingly, the Samaritan woman, and the woman caught in adultery. He gives in this gospel seven personal testimonies of Jesus, where Jesus describes who he is, talks about himself. He gives seven answers given by Jesus, primarily to his disciples, for questions that they ask him. And he lists out seven witnesses. I like this seven witnesses of Christ, John the Baptist being the first, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. His followers, which both spoke of then, but also speaks of now. Witnesses who give testimony to who he is. And then finally, the last two witnesses are the works and the word of Jesus. He says in John chapter five, verse 36, the works which the father has given me to accomplish, the very doing what he did, that this is the one who gives sight to the blind. This is the one who causes the deaf to hear. Well, that's what Isaiah said Messiah would be the works that i do testify these witness to who i am jesus said and he said you search the scriptures john 5:39 because you think that in them you have eternal life it is these that testify of me the scriptures speak of me and when jesus said that what scriptures was he talking about the old testament torah and the prophets and, and the wisdom literature of the Psalms, Jesus said, that, that, that's all testimony of, of who I am. So seven witnesses. We will see through the Gospel of John, and I'll point these out as we go, seven supernatural signs. Seven signs. Not eight, not 10, not 17, not three or four. Seven specifically. And finally, Jesus gives us the sevenfold promise of the Holy Spirit. I love this. John 16, verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come and he will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose to you. It's called the sevenfold witness of the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit comes to do is testify to and of Jesus Christ. John is focused, so focused. And he even lists out seven references to his hour. Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. Jesus knowing the hour statements that I read to you. Those seven I am statements come to a head in a shocking eighth I am statement. Now, I don't mean to confuse anybody. I know I said there were seven, and now, Rick, you're saying there's eight. Well, there are seven specific I am the this, I am the that. But there's an eighth statement that Jesus makes. It's not usually listed among the seven because it doesn't come off the same way. But in my humble opinion, it is the greatest I am statement of them all. And by the way, I have no problem with eight I am statements because eight is the number of infinity in the Bible, of the eternal. And so Jesus, he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, and I, I remember to this day the first time I read it, it blew my mind wide open in seeing who Jesus really is. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was. He wasn't just talking about his, that the Jewish leaders who were opposed to Jesus in that moment, when he said, before Abraham was born, I am, they were ready to kill him right then and there. Because he said, I'm God. He claimed oneness with the Father. And by the way, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. We've been in Torah for the last two or three years together. Five, the first five books of the scriptures. Have we not seen Jesus there before Abraham? Scriptures testify that he is who he said he was. So Jesus was there before all created things. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews thirteen eight. And so John begins in tandem with the grand opening of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And at this pace, I really think we're probably going to be in John for about the next three and a half years. <laughs> to begin with, the word already was, was with God and was God. The preexistent word. Doesn't get any more reasonably clear than that. The word coequal, co-eternal, coexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You want to talk about coexist? Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. They understand coexistence perfectly. We do not. We can't even coexist in our marriages with perfect harmony. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are coexistent. The Word, by the way, so John calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Logos. It's the perfect choice of a word. this is divinely inspired. I don't think John was smart enough to come up with this. To call Jesus. Of a thought, a concept, or an idea. So the expression of God, it's perfect. The embodiment of the Father, the Logos. Now listen, Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. Wrote of the Gospel of the King. Mark came along and he wrote for the early church that they would immediately have a biographical sketch of the Jesus that they believed in. Luke wrote to intelligent, studied Greeks. Not highfalutin, but but Luke wrote in classical Greek. And and he wrote to Theophilus. And and his writing was was truly to get the attention of those who were learned and studied people. You know who John writes to? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone, using again the most common language of the street, for God so loved the world. He writes to humanity. The Jewish person hearing in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. The Jewish person could immediately agree with that statement. In the beginning was the word. Yes, we would agree. There would be no oive. It would just be yes. We agree in the beginning was the word. Because by the first century, Jewish people already not speaking the name Yahweh out of respect had two ways of referring to God. They either called him Hashem, the name, or they called him Imrah, the word. The word, Imrah in Hebrew, it's the utterance or the expression. And they use that, Jewish people in the first century use that to refer to God. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, he is not alienating Jewish people, he's speaking in their language. They go, oh, yes, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, of course. Imra Hashem, the word, the name, God, yes, we know that, we believe that. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, the words, which is imra'ot, so it's the plural form, of the Lord, are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, the Imrah. So word would speak to the Hebrew mind. To the rest of the world, the Gentiles, 530 BC was the first time we see this. Greek philosopher Heraclitus used the phrase logos, the word logos, to express what he called the divine reason or plan, that which coordinates the entirety of the universe the Logos. He used that word because he couldn't think of anything else better that would d- define how, how ordered and organized the universe was and, and that which holds that organization. Come now, let us reason together. expression of God's own nature to mankind. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the expression of God. Jesus is the word, the explanation, if you will, of God. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. How mind boggling then, understanding this of the word for Paul to come along and then to reason, 1 Corinthians 1, 16, for who has known the mind of of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. <laughs> He's the word of God, and we have the mind of Christ. But when the spirit indwells a believer, you have access to the word of God himself. He is the pre-existent word. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus again is the coexistent word. Pre-existent word, he's the coexistent word. Note the phrase there that the word was with God. The word was with God. The word was with God. That, that is theon, which literally translates, get this, and the word was the God. Or the word was with the God. So it uses where the Jehovah's Witnesses come in and they're wrong as they say the word was a God at the end of the phrase. No. But it does use a definite article when it says and the word was with the God. That's there. What does that mean? It means unto or, or facing or toward. It's a preposition. Is the preposition in the Greek. It indicates a reciprocal, reciprocal towardness, um, a face-to-face, a heart-to-heart. That Jesus and the Father, they're just heart to heart. They see eye to eye on everything. It's what I said a moment ago. Coexistent. That is, they are perfectly coexistent. What that describes is the oneness of the Trinity. And I want to be really clear about this because it, it, there's easy for kind of a, it, it, it's been a recent perspective. It's not a correct perspective. It's called modalism. I've mentioned modalism recently, but it's the idea that, that Jesus is, the, is just God, that, that there is no other, that it's just Jesus, that, that God the Father then became Jesus and is Jesus the Son, and then, and then the Holy Spirit now is Jesus the Holy Spirit, and it's, and it's all Jesus. And on the one hand, you this triune, that is Father, Spirit, Son. And the oneness there is one of the most challenging things to our faith, truly. How many of you are really good at describing the Trinity to your friends and family? If you have a good description, please inform me. I'd like to know. It's challenging to think this way because this really blows our minds. It is hard for us to understand such a perfect union of heart-to-heart love, such a oneness that is yet still three. And this is why it's important not to skip over the Trinity for this idea of modalism. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Moses said it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, but the word one, echad, is a unity, a plurality of oneness. John 16, 14. Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit says, He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose to you. He doesn't say I, He says He. Speaking of the Spirit as, as unique to Himself, though the Spirit is God and Jesus is God, Jesus says the Spirit is He, not me. And yet, it is the Spirit of Christ. <laughs> John 17, verse 5. Now he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He speaks of the Father distinctly, of the Spirit distinctly. And John expresses Jesus with these most reasonable of terms, and the Word was God. And so is the Father. And so is the Holy Spirit coexistent let me be a little more specific if i can this is not modalism the difference is this modalism is the doctrine which is that they are distinct coexisting persons of the divine nature of what we call the godhead modalism says god just has three personalities the trinity says no he is distinctly father son and holy spirit The Trinity is what explains how Jesus could pray to the Father. He's not just splitting his personality. He's talking to the Father. He's offering the Spirit. There is Father, there is Spirit, there is Jesus, and they are all absolutely one in a way that we can't comprehend oneness. Because even in the best of our marriages, we will have conflict. We don't coexist in perfect peace. We have our good days and we have our bad. And I'm talking about y'all's marriage, not mine. (laughs) John 1.18, John says it beautifully. No one has seen God at any time can deal with that probably next Sunday. He has explained him. Now you might say, like what you're doing, Rick, as, as we go through John, you're explaining, no, no, it's not the same. Jesus didn't just explain God with words or in a word. Jesus came as the word so that we could see God in action. He came as the full expression of God because Jesus is fully God. So is the Father. So is the Spirit. And the three are distinct. And yet the three are one God. Well, I don't understand that. Good. You're on the right track. Because I don't either. But should we expect that we would fully comprehend God? If he is truly God, then he is at some level beyond human comprehension. And yet Jesus came to it. He invites us to come to that place of eternal communion. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for these who believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That unity, that, that union, that community, Jesus invites you, invites me to walk in that even today. Verse three, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And I got a motor here, but listen, that's all things. That's not some things. That's not most things. It's all things. The only nothing in that verse is that which exists apart from him. Nothing. Because he's made all things. So number three, if you're taking notes, Jesus is pre-existent. He is the coexist thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And God wants you to know this about the word before we come to the point where the word was made flesh. To comprehend and know, we wouldn't even be here if not for the word who created us and gave us life. But notice the personal pronouns in verses two and three, he and him. He was in the beginning. All things came into being through him, not it. If you're just talking about a word or a logos or a concept or an idea, you would say it. But he says he throughout. The word, before we even get out of verse three, the word is a person. This is already personal. Verse four, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend in this dark time of the age of humanity. Jesus is the enlightening word, but note this it says first, in him was life. Life, and the word life that John chooses there, the Spirit says, use this word, John, it's zoe. And zoe, which isn't just existence. Doesn't say, in him was existence. Mundane, day to day, week to week, year to year existence. No, life, zoe, it speaks of a quality of life. In him is life. Used to call it the Life. Man, that's the life. You want the life? Hey, I'm living the life. This is the quality of life that only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, he enlightens life. This is going to get much more intense as we go further into the gospel. But for now, just understand that the word Jesus, Jesus, in him is life. Listen to me. You're not going to find life anywhere else. You'll find existence You'll figure out how to get from one day into the next. You will live in the mundane. Only in Jesus can you find the quality of life that says, this is why I'm here. This is what it's for. This is where I'm going. The word in him is life. And he offers in this life, he says, and by the way, I offer you a new life, a new birth, immediate and eternal significance again that's chapter 3 to be born again in him is life and the life was the light of men he, he just turns the light on him and we go oh oh this is it it's what he came to do in his own words john 5 21 as the father raises the world not mundane existence life he says i am the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger he who believes in me will never thirst John 10.10, I came that they might have life and live it abundantly, have it abundantly. John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14.19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. You will see me because I live, you will live also. And I'll tell you what, there's a problem in the church when people are just existing rather than living. And I'm not talking about go out after church today and jump on a mountain bike and live, man. That's not life. That's dumb. No, I'm not. If you like to mountain bike, enjoy. Just don't break your face. No, people think, oh, I gotta go hiking to get life. I'm gonna go out fishing to get life. I'm gonna go experience the great outdoors for life. That's existence. Because it has in Christ, we need to knock off this mentality of existence one day to the next. It's like living paycheck to paycheck. Who wants to do that? When Jesus says, I come to give you life, purpose and meaning and direction and what it's all about, and too many of us are existing day to day. Time to start living, folks. Christmas Eve, we talked about this, that Jesus offers life and light in this dreary, dying darkness. He he's, turns the light on, bright and clear. The darkness doesn't get light. Darkness did not comprehend it, right? Doesn't get it. Talked about that Christmas Eve. The darkness doesn't receive light, won't, won't take it. A darkness cannot overpower light. By the way, if you didn't hear the Christmas Eve teaching, don't listen to it because it was Christmas Eve or because I taught it. Listen to it because you need to hear it. It's part of this gospel. And we spent some time looking at the light. Jesus is the preexistent, coexistent, all-creating, enlightening word. But this grand opening of John's is all the more profound. And I'm going to wrap this up. But for what John is about to express, this is where it gets absolutely mind-boggling. The first five verses alone are huge. They're powerful. They're impacting. They're divine. They're awesome. And then you get to verse 14, and the word became flesh. What? Wow. Solomon had just finished building the temple, gathered all the people in Jerusalem for that marvelous day, that celebration, that inauguration of of the temple. The temple of Solomon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, glorious. All the people gathered around the temple mount there in Jerusalem, looking up at that glorious temple, gathered around the holy of holies in the temple, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that traveled with them through the wilderness, The fire by night and the cloud by day entered the temple. was so thick that the priests had to get out. They couldn't even serve. Solomon gets up to speak, and he asks a reasonable question. Reasonable and rhetorical. He says in 1 Kings 8, 27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Come, let us reason together with the word of God. He loves you. He wants you to know him and to allow his light to drive the darkness out of your day and bring you to real life. Do you want a realization? of who you are. And so before we get into John's descriptions of you and of your nature and of your character, before we watch you moving and working and acting in ways that we didn't see in the other Gospels, before we get there, Jesus, help us all to acknowledge you as God. Help us to recognize who you are, who you were, before the beginning, who you were at the beginning, how everything came into being because of you. And here at the end of this age, Lord Jesus, help us first to acknowledge you as I am, as the Word, as God. And having acknowledged you as God, I pray now, Lord, at least experienced it backwards. He knew you first as a son of man and later comprehended as the son of God. But his gospel, Lord, now brings us to know you first as son of God. But I pray we may also know you as son of man. Lord, if anyone has not received you as Lord and Savior, if anyone is living the mundane life If anyone is choosing a life outside of you, Father, I pray for conviction this morning. I I pray for a breaking of the heart, a softening that we might choose you first, to live for you and to follow after you, that we might know life in your name, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.